the matter of the people of the state of California versus Orenthal James Simpson, case number BA09. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And boom, we're back, Taylor. It is <laughs> Wednesday. We are recording again tomorrow's Thanksgiving. We want to give thanks for you, the listener, me, the host, Taylor, the host. Um, and me. Sweet. And Taylor. Huh? Mostly Taylor. Uh, sweet. Welcome to Doom to Fail, uh, the podcast where we cover a true crime or historical event. I'm Fars, joined here by Taylor. It is Wednesday. Tomorrow is Thanksgiving, but we're an evergreen show. So I was going to cover a Thanksgiving topic. But decided not to because we are evergreen. So we're not doing that. We're doing something else. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like you could have done that. I did Napoleon and the movie's coming out today. Should we cancel recording and just. I'm just saying I don't. There are no rules. So I just don't want you to feel like you're beholden to any rules that we made up. We're just like Outback Steakhouse. No rules. Just right. (laughs) We've definitely said that before. So. Perfect. Exactly. So. Today, Taylor, I'm going to be drinking rum mm-hmm. because we, mm-hmm. much like your story, are going to be focused on islands that are owned by the Spaniards. All right. Cool, right? Yeah. Um, so this one, this story is a little bit, little bit unique because it kind of falls in line with like disasters and true crime and kind of all the kind of come in mixing mixing together so mm-hmm. the topic i'm going to be covering is the deadliest aviation aviation accident in history mm-hmm. have you ever heard do you know do you know who which one is the deadliest one in history is it the one with the pan am plane yes yes i love this of course. one i knew you in would know a terrible terrible way in like a of course i've spent hours googling plane crashes yeah i actually i think i watched this one while i was on a plane and was like man i do not look like the kind of person that should be watching this like i'm (laughs) the wrong shade Uh, oh my gosh you're you're the person behind you was like oh my god what the the fuck is this guy doing (laughs) one time taylor i was on a plane and i had like i had like have these cords in my um my statue that has my laptop in it so i like the laptop charger phone charger the headset charger all this shit that was in there and this like 60 year old like texan like super super southern baptist white woman was like behind Mm -hmm. me and i started pulling these cords out and the look on her face like she was fucking terrified it was incredible i was like man what must it be like to go through life like this (laughs) Like, oh god i'm sorry I'm, I'm sorry for you i'm sorry that america is racist well it was it was it was one example but i'm sure a lot of people have had that same thought and just didn't express it the way she did just fucking sheer absolute terror it was awesome um another time you know what i'm not gonna tell that story yet uh, i'm gonna save i'm gonna save some of the intrigue for later on but i'm, I'm excited be... this is what i've definitely thought about doing as well so i'm excited to hear from you seriously yeah, because it's a, such a, it's such a crazy story, and I think that you're gonna get into it. But it's one of those things where like seven thousand crazy things go wrong. Yes, in things yes. in ways that you wouldn't expect. Yeah. Yes. So this is called the Tenerife disaster. 
Um, and I am going to, you know, I wrote here that like, I, I made like a little side note about how much I fucking hate musicals. Um, and then I started putting this into a three part act and was like, why do I keep doing acts when I hate musicals? But anyways, we'll, we'll, we'll carry on. Well, I, so think, act- I think a lot of plays have musicals, but or plays have acts, not just musicals, but, um, I kind of don't know. like plays either. Why is it because you feel embarrassed? Because sometimes it's, you feel embarrassed of the people on stage. It's just like, it's like, how is this better than a Jerry Brockheimer movie? It's just, it's just different. I, whatever. We'll, we'll, let's talk about that later. <laughs> we'll have another. But it's a good way to organize a story is what we're getting to. So that's fine. Continue. We'll have another episode where we just debate musicals versus Jerry Brockheimer I used movies. to not like them. And then I just, I feel like maybe... We should have another lazy Sunday, and I'll make you watch Oklahoma. <laughs> <laughs> One day, because that day. sounds fun. Yeah. So the three acts to my story are number one, the setup. Basically, like you said before, this accident required a ton of pre-existing conditions to occur before it happens. So the setup's mm-hmm. kind of important. Then you have the accident. Then you have kind of a breakdown of the causes, essentially. And I'm going to do a little bit of, a, of an epilogue to this one about where things currently stand with the state of aviation safety because we are about to head down a very slippery slope which is good for me i'm super excited because i'm definitely going on a plane in a few weeks so i know i thought about that too carolina yeah you you might not (laughs) (laughs) jesus christ (laughs) so getting dark here um so the date we're talking about is March 27th, 1977. Two planes were making a trip to the Canary Islands, and the two planes were KLM 4805. KLM is a Dutch passenger carrier. It's basically their version of American Airlines. And this plane was flying from Amsterdam with 14 crew and 235 passengers. Then you have Pan Am 1736. That one originated that day out of LAX before it stopped at JFK in New York before making its way across the Atlantic, carrying 380 passengers and 16 crew. Both of these planes are 747s. 747s are the biggest planes. Well, no, actually the Airbus A380 is now the biggest plane in the world. But for like 45 years, this is the biggest plane. This is the hump one, the one that has a hump in the front of it. Uh-huh, so. uh-huh. Like two stories? Yes, they're two stories. Um, Both planes had exceptionally well-trained and qualified pilots. I'm saying all this because there's a a reason for it. Like, just so everybody knows. Like, this was was not like, you know, somebody gave a joystick to, like, a 10-year-old in the plane crash. Like, that's what we're talking about here. Which happened in one of the other ones that I've researched. We got to talk about that one after this, then. But uh, both these crews were incredibly well-trained. So the KLM pilot in particular is going to become relevant later on. That captain, the one in charge, was a guy named Jacob Van Zatten. And Van Zatten was KLM's main flight instructor for pilots who were trying to get certified on the 747. In fact, the people that were on the plane with him, the co-pilot, was certified by this main pilot, Van Zatten. He was mm-hmm. also on all of KLM's advertisements. Like, he was the mm-hmm. face of the brand from the pilot's perspective, essentially. Both planes were on their way to an island in the Canaries called Las Palmas to land at the airport there, which uh, was basically, it was just a normal airport, multiple runways. 
they were used to receiving a lot of traffic, a lot of international traffic, a lot of jumbo jet traffic. So that was the idea. That was what they're trying to do. So around 1 p.m. on this day, there was a terrorist group with this got to learn acronyms because this is a horribly, horribly long name. So the terrorist group was called the Movement for the Independence and Autonomy of the Canary Archipelago. <laughs> it's like, come That's on. Long. Like, let's get it it's together. Yeah. Yeah. Call yourself the Canaries. That's even cooler and darker. You wear masks. That is be cute. Mm-hmm. Um, so these guys called the airport authorities um, in Las Palmas and told them there, there was a bomb in the terminal and that they had 15 minutes before it exploded. The airport evacuated. Uh, and as promised, 15 minutes after that call, a bomb did explode at a floral shop that was in the terminal, which injured eight people. And they had to shuttle the airport. They're like, for some reason, they thought that there was another bomb on site. But long story short was they ended up saying no more inbound traffic. We're vacating everybody from the terminal. And that was basically it. So mm-hmm. these two planes that were about to land at this airport, they just had this bomb explode, started circling the airport. And the air traffic controllers in Las Palmas were like, just divert. Like there's another island 74 miles away called Tenerife. They have an airport mm-hmm. there. Go land there because we have no idea how long it's going to take for this to open. And if you keep circling, you might run out of fuel and crash anyways. So, totally. We've seen the yeah. Die Hard too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, I haven't, but you have. Um, mm-hmm. That's what happens in Die Hard too. There you go. Uh, thank you. So, Tenerife is, like I said, it's another island in the, the Canaries, owned by Spain, like kind of the synchronicity between our stories there. Uh, and. Mm-hmm. Basically, they have this one airport in Tenerife. It's called Los Rodeos. And this was a regional airport. So this was like a puddle jumper airport. Like, I remember when I went to Fiji. And when you fly into Fiji, you land at the main, like the biggest island in Fiji. And that's kind of like the central hub. But Fiji has like 300 islands. So you go go to most of them. And what you get on to go there is a absolutely terrifying experience where it's just you and like one other person in the pilot and the pilot is just like has coffee stains all over them and they're using papers to like navigate where they are like it is a nightmarish experience i've had it once before but that's the kind of traffic that was meant to suit los rodeos the airport that's on tenerife but this day they found themselves trying to host these two the pan am and the klm flight as well as three other wide body jets, other 747s. And because of that, there was not a ton of space to taxi. There was not a ton of space at a terminal or uh, on the runway itself. So for this part, I wrote down, I'm going to use my hands to paint you a picture, Taylor, but we're not on screen. So you're going to have to use your brain. So I'm going to articulate it. So I'm going to tell you what the... Um, layout was of the runway and taxiway at Los Rodeos, okay? okay? So, picture a rectangle sitting down lengthwise on its side. Like a runway. Much like a runway. Got it. Pictured. The bottom of that rectangle is the runway. It's a nice big runway. Mm-hmm. The top of the rectangle is the taxiway where the terminal is and where you go to kind of just get off the runway and go to the terminal, right? Mm -hmm. Between the taxiway and the runway, between the top of the rectangle and the bottom of the rectangle, 
there are four off ramps connecting the two. And we're going to re refer to these as exits. So exit one is connected, connects the two in a straight line. So basically, if you're trying to go on or off either one of them, you take a 90 degree turn either way. Make sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exit two and three, they, those connect the taxiway and the runway at a backslash angle. So that if you're at a small regional apologizing plane, you can exit halfway or so down the runway to the terminal. So basically, it's at the end of the runway, or like, yeah, it's, not, it's not even there. It's like closer to like halfway to the runway. So you just basically pull off, you do like a little 30 degree turn and then you're off and you're at the terminal. Mm -hmm. Then you have exit four, which is a forward slash angle. And it's set up this way so that if you don't have space to use the taxiway, two or more planes can follow each other down the runway. The trailing plane can take exit four. The lead plane can go to the end of the runway and make a U-turn. That's the idea. Mm -hmm. Got it? Mm -hmm. Good. So given where these two planes ended up parking once they landed in Tenerife, the KLM is the lead plane of this example, and the Pan Am is the trailing plane. The Pan Am mm -hmm. didn't want to be didn't really want to be in the trailing plane, plane spot because they were already cleared to take off and head back to Las Palmas ahead of the KLM plane because the um, captain of the KLM plane decided that he wanted to refuel at Tenerife as opposed to Las Palmas. So originally the plan was you land in Las Palmas, you refuel, and then he flies back to Amsterdam. Now he has to land in Tenerife, then Las Palmas, then Amsterdam. So he's like, fuck it, I'm just going to refuel here. It'll make it a lot easier. Mm -hmm. This ended up mm -hmm. causing a delay about 35 minutes, and the Pan Am plane couldn't get around the KLM plane. So everybody was waiting for this KLM plane to get refueled. During okay. this time, this 35 minutes, a fog starts settling in on the runway. The runway was already overpacked, and that day there was only two air traffic controllers working. And at this point, they really can't see anything that's going on on the runway. Like it was, it was visibility conditions that ordinarily means that you would never allow anybody to take off because it, it's mm -hmm. just, you can't see more. I forgot what it was. It was like 300 feet in front of you. If you can't see more than 300 feet in front of you, you can't take off. And they couldn't see 300 feet in front of them. In addition to that, there was no ground radar. So there was zero visibility of what was going on outside. So mm -hmm. back to the accident. Oh, so th 35 minutes passed and the KLM was finally ready to kind of start going down the runway to taxi and to take off. Again, because the taxiway was packed full of planes at the terminal, everyone leaving Los Rodeos had to use the runway as the taxiway to get into position to take off. So the idea was the KLM, as lead plane, would go down the runway till it gets to the end, make a U-turn, and then go down the opposite direction of the runway to take off. The mm -hmm. Pan Am would follow the KLM down the runway but obviously it needs to get out of the way. So it would take one of the exits I mentioned earlier to get out of the way and line itself up behind the KLM and then take off behind it. So mm -hmm. around 5 p.m. that day, the two planes set off on the runway with Pan Am being instructed to take exit three. Exit three is the forward slash exit. It was obvious and I actually listened to and then read the, the cockpit voice recorders of this, which was totally harrowing, but. Oh my God. On the voice recorder, you can hear that this crew is super confused as to like what exit they're supposed to take. And it makes sense for reasons I'll get to later why they were so confused. And it was interesting because like the air traffic controllers were fucking dicks about it. Like mm. they were they're like being such jerks to the pilots 
the pilots were asking them a ton. They're like, you said three? Like, three. Like, wait, are you saying one, two, three? And like, one, two, three. It's like, me, Uno, do Like, they're repeating it. Like, they're so confused about this. And the air traffic control is like, fuck these guys. Like, they're just trying to be rude to us or something. And they were being really mean to us. Were they speaking but, in, in English? Yeah, there's, yeah, English is the common language of all, okay. everything. So, um, yeah. but I'll explain why they shouldn't have been jerks to them here in a minute. So. Because they shouldn't have been jerks to them. Well, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. So basically part of the reason why there was confusion was A, there was no markings on the exits. So you had to count mm. the exit, but as you're going down the runway, you're also doing your takeoff checklist. So you have to run mm. through all, okay, this button is up, that button's down. You have to do all this shit. And on top of that, there's fog, so you can't really see the runways anyways. But in addition to that, it would become obvious that a plane of the size of a 747 would have been impossible to have done a forward slash turn the way that they were asking for. It essentially looked like mm-hmm. a back, like a backward Z is how it would have looked. It would have been, it was like 150 degrees. It would have been impossible to make the turn. And that's also part of the confusion. Like, what are you talking about? Like, how am I supposed to do? Mm-hmm. Are you sure you're saying three? Anyways, so four minutes after starting down the runway, the KLM gets to the very end and makes its U-turn and it radios to air traffic controllers to tell them that they're ready to take off. The air traffic mm-hmm. controller does what is basically standard procedure and tells them what their route is going to be once they take off. So here's what... This is a quote of what the air traffic controller says to the KLM plane. KLM 8705, you are clear to the Papa Beacon. Climb to and maintain flight level 90. Right turn after takeoff. Proceed with heading 040 until intercepting the 325 radial from Las Palmas VOR. I have no idea what the fuck that means. You're right and not understand that. What you should, what should have been said after all of this was said was cleared for takeoff that's the universal language used for he said you're cleared to he didn't say you're cleared to takeoff so the very beginning he says you are cleared to pop a beacon he didn't say you're cleared to takeoff and was he cleared for takeoff or no he was not cleared for takeoff but at that point but he said the word you're cleared okay yeah at that point the pilot van zetten in dutch says we're going and you hear the engines spool up on the plane on on that part so we do, we do hear on the klm side the air traffic controller saying okay but do but due to interference on the radio uh what he was actually saying was okay stand by for takeoff i will call you so the pilot says we're uh, okay we're going and the and the air traffic controller says okay and then it's just static because it's interference, but what he was saying was, okay, stand by for takeoff. Right? Got it. So, by this point, the Pan Am was still on the runway, having gotten confused between exit three and four. At 5.06, this is, I pulled this all off the actual, um, the transfer of the flight data recorder. So, mm-hmm. it, it goes by in seconds. So, this is all within the 5.06 time frame. It's 5.06 p.m., but at 35 seconds, someone on the KLM flight inquires where the Pan Am is cleared, but they don't press the issue. Like it's, they're like wondering if the plane is has been clear of the runway yet. At the 41 they second can't, mark, they can't see each other, right? Or they can, can't see but each like other. barely. Well, okay. 
So the 41 second mark is the first time anybody sees anybody. So the 41 second mark, six seconds after the engine starts pulling up, the Pan Am captain sees the lights on the landing gear of the KLM and realizes the plane in front of them is trying to take off in front of them. Two seconds later, the KLM pilot realizes the Pan Am is in his way. And at this point, he's going approximately 161 miles per hour. And oh my God. at that point, you can't break in time. And so he's, you hear him on is the, it? this is, is it 5.06, uh, uh, almost, almost. It's 5.06 okay. p.m. And at this point, it's too late to break. The captain says V1, which is what you do to kind of start. That means, like, you have no choice. You have to take off. And you pull back on the yoke and to try and lift the nose of the plane up. At the 50-second mark, six seconds after he says pull up on the yoke, V1, you hear the collision on both voice recorders. So Ugh. what happened was when the Pan Am saw the KLM he heading towards them, they applied full power and tried to steer the plane into the grass, get out of the way. They never found the exit. <laughs> like, even where the plane right. was landing, it was never at the exit. When the KLM realized the Pan Am was in front of them, they tried to take off prematurely, and they ended up scraping the bottom of the plane on the ground for about 72 feet. So they, they're, they're trying to get up and going. The nose did clear the Pan Am. It was the engines in the landing gear that caught the plane lengthwise. So oh. picture that. I mean, they're T-boning each other, right? Like, or, well, yeah. the KLM is well, T-boning the Pan Am. If they're not face-to-face, -face, it's T-boning it? Yeah, they're T-boating it. Okay. Uh, yeah. The... KLM actually became airborne briefly before it crashed, and because they had filled the complete fuel tanks up, it just erupted into a massive fireball. Basically, not basically, literally everyone on the KLM died. Um, so 248 people died on the KLM, and 335 people on the Pan Am died. 61 people survived, plus one woman who didn't reboard the plane after it landed in Tenerife because she was like, fuck it, I don't want to go to Las Palmas anymore. In total, about 583 people ended up dying that day. Oh my God. So act three is the causes. This is so interesting because again, so many things have to come together. So there's a concept mm -hmm. of aviation known as the Swiss cheese model, which sounds delicious. But really what it is, is it, if you line up a bunch of like slices of Swiss cheese, like, you might be able to get through one hole, but the next slice will stop you. Or if that one doesn't stop, right. stop you, the third one stops you. And so aviation yeah. security and safety is kind of built around this concept, the Swiss cheese model. And so as a result, if one thing goes wrong, usually it's not a big deal. Two things go wrong, three things. Like, most of the time, it's not a big deal. It's only when a bunch of stuff converge, and that's what ended up happening in this situation. So let's go through the causes real quick. So first things first, terrorism. So apparently... God, the history, history is insane. So Spain, so the Canary Islands had indigenous people there. <laughs> and Spain invaded and made it Spanish territory. And so mm -hmm. these natives were fighting back. I mean, you know, we're calling it terrorism. Like it was basically like a march against colonialism is really what it was. If they hadn't did what they did that day in Las Palmas, the planes would have presumably landed fine and everything would have been fine. Like, yeah. there wouldn't have had yeah. any issues. To their credit, they did say that they should not be blamed for this. <laughs> just like, which I, I just love the idea of, like, a terrorist group having a PR firm be like, look, we look like assholes. We got to get ahead of this. 
Yes, we just set a bomb. We had nothing to do with this, you guys. Yeah. Which is true. Like, they could, that wasn't, yeah, like, it's exactly that. Like, it's so many things had to happen for this to happen. So it's not the terrorist's fault, but, like, they started it. But also, they definitely started it. Also, yeah, let's, I'm glad we I'm laughing because I'm going to throw up. I'm glad we have it on tape and it's being recorded. Um, Mm -hmm. The other is weather. So the weather in Tenerife sucked. So the visibility, like I mentioned before, under any other circumstances would have violated air, air, air traffic regulations for them to take off in. But at that point, there was nowhere to put these planes. They were too big. There were too many giant fucking planes in a tiny, tiny airport. And so they had to be like, guys, just get out of here. Like somehow get out of here. Um, the other had to do with a time, a duty time regulations. So this is the amount of time a pilot or flight crew that are allowed to work and be operational. So mm-hmm. currently it sits at eight hours for pilots and 10 for crew members. I had this exact same situation happen to me like a few months back when I was in DC where like my flight kept getting delayed and pushed back. And by the time we boarded, a storm had came into DC and they're like, we have to wait until the storm yeah. passes. And then all of a sudden it's 30 minutes. And I'm like, dang, I can't fly. We won't land in time for me yeah. to like be op- in an operational safety window. So the idea was that this pilot, Captain Van Zetten, he was in a rush. He was trying to get everybody over to Las Palmas so he could board up as much as quickly as possible and fly back to Amsterdam to be home that night. Um, yeah. it, because because so much of this was based on his impatience. The fact that he wanted to refuel was based on his impatience. That slowed everybody down. The fact that he didn't listen for commands, that was impatience. And there's another concept mm-hmm. I'm going to bring up here in a second. So the refueling part. So the runway at Tenerife, is 10,203 feet. The KLM struck the Pan Am in the six to uh, five to 6,000 foot mark of it. So like a little over mm-hmm. halfway down the runway. A fully loaded 747 needs at minimum 7,200 feet to reach the speed it needs to take off. Mm-hmm. The amount of weight added to the plane when he decided to refuel in Tenerife as opposed to Las Palmas, about 32 tons. Fucking huge amount Mm -hmm. of weight, right? Yeah. The idea is that it is possible that if he had not refueled and he had the patience to just go to Las Palmas and do what he was supposed to do there and refuel there, that he would have had enough, a light enough weight to have taken off and missed the plane. But even more critical, if he didn't do that, if he didn't refuel, he wouldn't have wasted 35 minutes before the fog came in and obstructed all the views. Mm-hmm. So that mm-hmm. on its own could have prevented everything as well. The other one is a concept known as cockpit gradient. So junior cockpit crew on X, uh, on KLM had expressed concerns. They had asked and been like, is the Pan Am gone? Are we sure it's gone? But the other guy, Van Zandt, was so senior that nobody really listened to him. Or like, he, they were like, they, they didn't want to press the issue with him. He's like, he's if if he says it's okay, it's okay. Like, fuck what I know and what my instincts are telling me. I gotta listen to what this guy says. And, this and like, is a, are you gonna talk about this, Faris? I'm sorry, but no. the that like KLM tried to call him for to do PR after it. Yeah, yeah. No, they didn't call him to do PR after it. They they they. The, the executive leadership team at KLM, when they heard about this crash, they're like, okay, uh, we got to send people over there. Send Van Zatten. He's the most trained and qualified person. Like, he was the one flying the plane. Mm-hmm. He's dead. Yeah, like they couldn't they couldn't have imagined that he was involved in it because they were like, he's our number one guy. Yeah, exactly. 
So <laughs> this is like such a crazy, so this is so common in aviation for some reason. So there was one story I read about a United captain whose landing gear, it, was, it wasn't showing that it was lo- in a locked position. So he kept circling the airport, basically trying to figure out how to get this thing to show that it's in a locked position before he, before he lands. The crew, you could hear telling him, like, we're running low on gas, we're running low on gas. They were kind of just hinting at it until the engines flamed out. And they just fucking plummeted to earth. And it was like, everybody knew, except the captain, <laughs> running out of the most basic essential. Like, yeah. <laughs> so wild. And, like, why didn't, like, I don't know, did you also hear about, in my research of plane crashes, which of which I've done a ton, how, like, there were a lot of plane crashes, like, in South Korea because the pilots were too polite? Yeah, yeah. Did you so, have you heard that? Yeah, so that is part of... Um, Again, there's so many different things that came together. So the other part of it, yeah, to your your example there, that is part of the reason why English became the primary language. Because, mm-hmm. I, okay, so like in Farsi, for example, like there's ways of making language deferential and like super flowery, right? Like when you talk to your parents or you talk to someone in like a higher social status, whatever the fuck that means, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. you're supposed to be like, like, you don't just say like, hey, how you doing? You're like the honor is all mine for being in your presence. You know, you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, it's just over yeah, the top yeah. fucking like super regal language. And because mm-hmm. of that, you can't, there's no actual words for urgency because urgency isn't proper, you know? And so right. Korean, or I thought it was Korean or Japanese, whichever one, their language is like that. It's like Farsi where it's, it's just like, they were so flowery and it was like, Hey, we're about to fly into a mountain, and like your most excellent regal majesty, sir, with all due respect, all of a sudden you're fucking dead. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. So that's part of the reason why English became the standardized language because English doesn't have that. So yeah, totally makes sense. But now there is a thing called crew resource management, which is basically a management style saying that anybody inside the cockpit has equal power to challenge anybody else's opinions, and the captain should. Mm-hmm. Listen, look, it doesn't make any difference because, like, these are humans in human institutions, and people are just going to do what the fuck they're going to do, right? So, like, yes, mm-hmm. you should – like, after this came out, after crew resource management as a concept came out and became part of pilot training, there's, like, another 300 plane crashes that happened because people didn't say anything. So, like – You're right. It didn't, it didn't fix it forever. <laughs> yeah, you're not going to fix humans. Like, until the drones take over, like, this is going to keep happening. Mm. So – Overall, so the Spanish government took charge of the investigation. Kalen and Pan Am sent people over there. There's a number of findings um, in addition to the ones I just listed out. But overall, they blamed Captain Manzatten and Kalen for the crash, saying he took off without emergency proper clearance. There's other things that came out around this, which was the standardization of other forms of language. So, for example, you could never use – like, now you can never use, like, colloquialisms, like, okay – or Roger, mm-hmm. like, like it has to be very, very by the books. And in the end, Kalem paid out what was then $110 million, what is today $553 million to the families of the victims. What's really interesting, yeah. you, you should totally do this because I know this is like your, up your alley. There's a podcast. Um, so the New York Times is a podcast called The Daily. And on September mm-hmm. 5th, they, they – this is terrible – they released an episode, uh, and the title of the episode is Pasture Planes Nearly Collide Far More Than You Know. Ugh. 
Did you hear I know. this? I think I, I feel like I've I've read the I've read the there's an article about it that was in like the Times or something. But yes, because like and on the ground, right? Mm-hmm. On well. the ground and in the air. So what they were what they said was that based on some data that they collected for several teams, uh, for example, they found that there was about one per day at minimum one per day of what's called a close contact or what the FAA refers to as skin to skin contact, which is airplanes basically touching skins, which is really, really bad. And that was not including the uh, database controlled and documented by NASA, which includes 300 uh, close calls so far this year. And this was done in September. So 300 Mm -hmm. in nine months, basically long story short was that in the 1980s, the air traffic controllers went on strike and air traffic controllers are federal Mm. employees. And during this time, Reagan was president was in legally, it was, it was considered illegal for them to not work. And so Reagan fired them all and hired new ones. So what ended up happening was because everybody got hired at the same time, everyone's now retiring at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's a wave of mass retirements for air traffic controllers. And then when the FAA started ramping up hiring of air traffic controllers, they faced the next issue, which was COVID hitting. So basically what ended up happening was that there wasn't enough people who were qualified enough to train and also man the booths of air traffic control. And so now you mm-hmm. have lesser trained, less qualified people in air traffic control as well as not having as many as you need anyways. So right now, there's about 10% less air traffic controllers and less trained air traffic controllers than you would actually want in in operation. Only three Mm -hmm. airports out of 313 in the United States are currently fully staffed and basically like doing what is expected of their job. Um, So So you're saying it's, it's it's Ronald Reagan's fault? Basically, it all boils down to Ronald Reagan. What's really interesting was they said they said something on this um, episode. They were like, "It's funny because we usually do these episodes when something bad happens, but you're telling us like now we know something bad is going to happen." They called the FAA the Tombstone Agency because they're like they only take action after there's been a bunch of deaths, which is like kind of what they're uh, doing right now, anyways. Totally. It's terrifying. Cool. I'll see you in New York, North Carolina. You know, I used. I used to be super scared on planes. Now I'm like just regular scared on planes. But like, I feel like also, oh, I don't fucking care. You know, I'm gonna. I'd rather go to Jay's wedding than not. And the other, it's fine. The other fun thing they mentioned was that because of COVID, all these airlines who are carrying these inflated air, air um, captain salaries decided to furlough a shitload of them. And when oh, COVID yeah, came back sure. and air air air, uh, air transport came back. Those guys all decided to retire. <laughs> so, of course. so what they did was they were just like hiring these like 25 year olds who were doing like regional flights to like mm-hmm. manage these mm-hmm. giant airplanes. And so now you have inexperienced air traffic controllers, too few of them, and also inexperienced pilots. So that Swiss cheese model is kind of coming to kind of a chaotic uh, in conclusion here. Honestly, it's a miracle that we don't have that. We don't have one every day. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. It's, they're doing pretty great, all things considered. Yeah, I agree. Did you hear about that guy who's on shrooms who tried to down a plane the other day? No. 
there was a pilot who last podcast talked about it in their like um, side stories, but this dude was like off, off duty on a plane, but he had done shrooms like three days before and it was like messing with him and he thought he was in a dream. So he tried to like pull a lever that would like turn off the gas to the engine and then ended up having to like tie him down. And he's like ever, it was fine, but he is charged with like 180 counts of attempted murder or something. Like his life is fucking over because wow. he was on shrooms. <laughs> I don't know. I don't. He wasn't working, but they shouldn't let him in. Like, yeah, yeah. That seems like a weird waste of shrooms. Um. So, anyways, that's my story. Tenerife, the worst airplane accident in history. Two seven forty sevens, the worst case. I mean, the only thing that could be worse than that now would be like an eight two A three eighties doing that. Yeah, that is terrible. But anyways, there there we have it. Uh, Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Remember. (laughs) <laughs> Remember, um, thank your pilgrims. Thank the corn. Um, yeah, that's almost exactly what you should do. I um, you know, if you want to, you know, talk about go go see Napoleon. If you um, are in a fight with someone in your family, you can just leave and go to the movies. It's a good day to go to the movies. Help your mom if she needs help in the kitchen, and have a good time. Also, just don't talk politics. Like it's so easy. It's so easy. Like when we're, we're I mean, I don't know, like when we were kids, like. <laughs> talking about politics wasn't normal. And so if you have a crazy uncle or a crazy in-law, just just like, don't talk about it. Like, it's so easy. I know. I feel like I just get a little worried that they might like one-off something like trans people aren't real, you know? And you'd be like, oh my God, just pass the stuffing, you know? But um, if Whenever everybody you... agrees to it, fine. Or but everybody if, has to agree to it. Or if you hear that, all you do is say, pass the stuffing. That's it. Does anyone have any shrooms? <laughs> you are not going to change your family members. This. You're not going to change everybody's mind. They're not going to change your mind. Just keep it's peace true. and move on with your lives. It's true. So. And it's your mom. Cool. That is it. Thank you, Farz. I love that story because it's absolutely bananas and scary. And so many little things happened. And it's just a whole a whole thing. Oh, there is several episodes. Um, uh, Seconds to Disaster and Mayday both have, they're both free to watch on YouTube. And they do really cool reconstructions of what this looked like when it happened. And so YouTube mm-hmm. at Tenerife, just do Tenerife plane. And it is the number one thing that's going to pop up. And we hope you're okay after you do that. I wonder what mind and, or uh, mid journey is going to come up with for this one. <laughs> I'm scared. I'm going to ask know. it, but I'm nervous. Maybe it'll say no. I hope it says no, but we'll see. We'll see. Um, but yeah, thanks, Taylor. Um, thanks so we, much, Fars. Remember, everyone, uh, Doomnafil, at Doomnafil Pod, write to us at Doomnafil Pod, or hold on, write to us. Yeah, write to us at Doomnafil Pod at gmail.com. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Sweet. And please, please, yes, follow, tell your friends. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Fars. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving.